Welcome to River City 360, views and news from around Winnipeg. My name is Nolan Bicknell. With me as always is my co-host, Robert Zirk. On today's show, we'll hear from Ian Bird, president of Community Foundations of Canada. He'll let us know about what to expect in 2017 for Canada's 150th birthday. Then we'll hear the final installment of our interview series with Kevin Lamaru, the Associate Vice President of Indigenous Affairs at the University of Winnipeg, where we've been asking him about truth and reconciliation. Then we'll tell you about SEDNET, which is the Community Economic Development Network, and we'll hear from their Manitoba Regional Director, Sarah Leeson-Klim. We've also got a brand new Manitoba Hockey Trivia Challenge question in celebration of the NHL's 100th season. Trivia master Fred Morris will join us in studio to challenge your Manitoba hockey knowledge. And as always, we'll be speaking with Noah Ehrenberg about how you can attend free multimedia journalism workshops right here in Winnipeg. All this, some great tunes, and much, much more on today's episode of River City 360. Welcome to River City 360, Nolan and Robert here with you this morning. We have got a fantastic show uh, for you this morning, but before we get into the music, before we get into the interviews, um, we just wanted to mention a quick thing. If you're a frequent listener of CJNU, you probably already know that this weekend is their annual pledge drive, and today is the act- actually the final day to get your pledges in. Um, CJ- CJNU is almost entirely volunteer run, but they do have one paid staff member, um, but the station is supported by by its listeners, by people like you. It's a community radio station, uh, so if you enjoy CNG- CJNU's programming, if you enjoy the music, a great way to show support is by calling in and donating to the pledge drive. I think their goal this year is to raise three thirty thousand uh, dollars, and you can help do your part to get them there. Uh, if that if this sounds like something you'd like to do, the pledge drive actually opens in about fifty eight minutes. Uh, it's going to open up this morning at nine o'clock sharp. Uh, I'll give you the number now. You can write it down, and before the show, before River City three sixty ends, uh, you can call. And support CGNU because it's a wonderful station. We're very happy to to uh, have our show here on the, on CGNU. It's a wonderful station, and community radio is really where it's at. So that number is four ten twenty seven hundred. So two zero four four one zero two seven zero zero four ten twenty seven hundred. Um, now that we got that out of the way, let's get to some music. How about Hugo Strasser with When You're Smiling, right here on River City 360. Thank you. 
Throughout the next year on River City 360, we'll be bringing you stories connected to the themes of Winnipeg's Vital Signs 2017, a program led by the Winnipeg Foundation that measures the vitality of our community through research and surveys. For more information, visit wpgfdn.org slash vital signs. Welcome back to River City 360. Robert and Nolan here with you this morning. Last weekend, 40 community foundations came together for the Manitoba Community Foundation Regional Meeting to learn, exchange ideas, and explore new ways to work together. I sat down with Ian Bird, the President and CEO of Community Foundations of Canada, to discuss what it is that makes Manitoba in particular a leader in Canada's community foundation movement. Well, Manitoba is the real uh, sort of heartbeat of community foundations in Canada. The oldest community foundation is Winnipeg, of course, and we have 54 community foundations in the region, including Kenora and Lake of the Woods, just across the border. And the, the key feature is this is a group that really works closely together. And for us at Community Foundations of Canada, it was a real opportunity to bring our board of directors made up of people from all across the country here to learn about what makes this such a um, vibrant place for community philanthropy. That doesn't happen by accident. A big part of it is the Winnipeg Foundation and its leadership. But it's also the fact that there's been a historical kind of belief system that regardless of the size of the community, you could build a community foundation that really understood what was needed and worked together to make a difference. And although Manitoba has less than 4% of Canada's population, our province is home to more than a quarter of the 191 community foundations here in Canada. Here, really every community's got its own foundation that wishes to have one. There's other parts of the country like Nova Scotia, and Newfoundland, Labrador, where they really have one foundation for the province and within it, they have community funds. So it really depends on the region, you know, the kind of um, strategy that works the best is really the key thing and to really respond to that local interest. Um, the other thing that's of course emerging uh, across Canada and is a big opportunity here in Manitoba is there's the ongoing process of reconciliation between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples and communities and we're seeing in, in other parts of the country uh, First Nations communities, uh, Inuit communities, uh, who are really organizing and making use of the community foundation model as a way to make a difference and to grow the strength of their own community. One thing that resonated with me in Ian's address at the regional meeting was when he said, quote, when we say we're all for community, we don't just mean the one we live in. I asked him to elaborate on the importance of collaboration among Canada's community foundations and the importance of events like these that bring them all together. Canada is unique in that way in that you've got a network in which every community foundation in the country is connected, uh, working collaboratively. Uh, almost 90% of Canada's communities have access to a community foundation, so there's a real reach and scope to that work. Uh, and it suggests to us anyways that some of the thornier challenges that our communities are facing are actually ones that we can work on together as the 191 community foundations. So whether that be the balance between clean energy and climate change or the work around addressing you know, the growth of income inequality uh, as a really difficult and intractable challenge is something we might be able to disrupt or the, the work that needs to go on around uh, the reconciliation process. So these are 
really big pan-Canadian issues that come to bear in community, but we can work on them together. And um, by doing that, we have a better chance, we think, of um, breaking through. So these kinds of gatherings are what we need in order to be an effective network and one that can work on the big things but not lose sight of uh, our roots and the important work right at the neighborhood level. Community Foundations of Canada also stewards the Vital Signs Initiative with community foundations across Canada, including Winnipeg's Vital Signs 2017 that's led by the Winnipeg Foundation. It includes a kind of annual look into what's at play in community to take stock at at a given time and say, what's happening here, what's important across a range of domains. But more than that, it's about then how do you make use of that understanding, that community knowledge that you've garnered so that you can be more effective at working in partnership at the community level or to work around the uh, effectiveness of their grant making or to respond to the needs of charities, work differently with businesses and governments. It really becomes what do you do when you come to know more about your community? That's really at the center. There's some 85 um, communities now that roll out vital signs across the world. And it's one of the ways, it's not the only way, but one of the ways that we try to coordinate activity and mobilize um, a kind of asset, a community's knowledge as the asset to the, to the betterment of the community. One important milestone on the horizon in the community foundation movement in Canada that's coming up is the 100th anniversary of the movement itself, which started right here in Winnipeg with the founding of the Winnipeg Foundation in 1921. We're five years away, so there'll be lo- much to celebrate as always in Winnipeg and uh, a whole lot of other communities with a lot to be thankful for, for what got started here with Mr. Alloway and that amazing story of the widow's might. Just the example that the founding story of Winnipeg gave to everyone else that said we will bring together the resources each to their own means in such a way that they're shared amongst the community and for the community and whether you were someone with the stature and means as Mr. Alloway or truly uh, someone who just gave their last coins to the foundation We know that everyone drawing those resources together can model the kind of society we hope to have uh, here in Canada as well as create a kind of philanthropic institution that will endure for a long, long time. When we come back, we'll learn more about how Canada's community foundations are getting involved in the celebration of Canada's sesquicentennial, or 150th anniversary. You're listening to River City 360.
Welcome back to River City 360. We're speaking with Ian Bird, the President and CEO of Community Foundations of Canada. On Tuesday, the 150 Alliance, which was started by Community Foundations of Canada, brought local organizations together to discuss plans for Canada's 150th anniversary. Important institutions in our communities are finding ways to take the anniversary as a moment to do important work, either to make new partnerships or to raise new issues or to respond to what the future holds. So that the gathering that took place was just really an opportunity that we try to create over and over again across the country and opportunities for people to come together organizations to come together and figure out maybe if we worked together around the 150th we might actually get a little bit further so a filmmaker might find you know that uh, group of voyageurs that want to recreate um, one of the great paddles and portages from another era or there'll be a media group that will come together with a particular initiative around children and youth and raise its profile. There's all sorts of things that happen at Alliance events and the 150 Alliance is a key, key part of the infrastructure for Canada's 150th. We're happy to provide some support to that, be a bit of a backbone, but it's truly an alliance. It is made up of all the action and efforts of the many uh, I think now almost 4,000 organizations that are involved. At the meeting, several organizations shared some of their upcoming plans for 2017, including Experiences Canada, Parks Canada, and the 2017 Canada Games. There are a lot of great projects tied to Canada's 150th on the horizon, so be sure to watch for those beginning next year. Another way that CFC is involved with Canada's sesquicentennial is through coordinating the Community Fund for Canada's 150th, which will support thousands of local projects and initiatives across the country. It's a public-private partnership with the federal government, ourselves and community foundations, kind of aligning our resources uh, with community resources so that many, many neighborhood-level grants, no more than $15,000, average grant around seven dollars or $8,000, can be put towards community-based priorities that really advance inclusion, that strengthen connections at the community level, that find a way to grapple with the prospects for pluralism and a kind of the diversity that Canada is so well known for, as well as, the, uh, as I said earlier, the potential for reconciliation. So it's a really good example of how, if we work collectively, in this case, governments, community foundations, community organizations, potentially the private sector, we can maximize an opportunity like the 150th provides not just through the kind of cake and fireworks uh, type activities, which will be a ton of fun, but through some really meaningful, substantive work at the community level, at the neighborhood level, whereas we know so much really happens to especially help people that are uh, at the margins. We asked Ian to share an example of the sorts of projects that the Community Fund for Canada's 150th might support. There's a healing society, First Nations Healing Society in Edmonton. They're one of our, our most recent grant recipients. And they're working on a project that will be about welcoming Syrian refugees in Edmonton in such a way that those newcomers to Canada come to know the meaning of the land and the waters and of place from an Indigenous perspective. You know, that kind of thing is what's going to shape the kind of Canada of the 21st century that really, as we look around the world, is the kind of, you know, Canada that the world really needs. So. It's examples like that, and it's just one. There's many, and they're happening all across the country, and I'm sure we're going to see coming out of this meeting we just held at the WAG some amazing opportunities for 
the fund to get behind some great projects. Thanks very much, Ian, for taking the time to speak with us. Thanks for having me. I hope everyone finds a way to get involved in the 150th and finds a way to do so with uh, the great community foundations here in Manitoba. All the best. And if you'd like to learn more about Community Foundations of Canada, visit communityfoundations.ca and to learn more about the 150 Alliance, visit 150alliance.ca. Stay tuned to River City 360 throughout the year for more stories connected to Winnipeg's Vital Signs 2017, a program led by the Winnipeg Foundation that measures the vitality of our community through research and surveys. For more information about Vital Signs, visit wpgfdn.org slash vital signs. Coming up next, the final installment in our four-part interview with Kevin Lamaru, the Associate Vice President of Indigenous Affairs at the University of Winnipeg. We're going to be continuing our discussion on the subject of truth and reconciliation. But first, here's Kate Smith with Here, There, and Everywhere, right here on River City 360. With a wave of his hand, nobody can deny that there's something there. There, running my hands through his hair, both of us thinking how good it can be. Someone is speaking. But he doesn't know she's there I want him everywhere And if he's beside me I know I need never care But to love him is to meet him everywhere Be there and everywhere here. There. 
Welcome back to River City 360. Robert and Nolan here with you this morning. For the past few weeks on the program, we featured installments of our interview with Kevin Lamaru, who's the Associate Vice President of Indigenous Affairs at the University of Winnipeg. This week, we have the fourth and final installment of our interview, in which Kevin discusses what comes next in the dialogue about truth and reconciliation. Here is RC360's Stacey Cardigan-Smith. If we as Canadians are going to move forward and ensure the best future for our children, what are the next steps? So, again, being aware of the calls to action are foundational. And, again, that's, I think that that's going to take Canadians on a journey that maybe they don't expect. But I think that it's going to be trans- transformational, and, and that's really what education should be. I don't think that education is about receiving these parcels of information and now you have it and somebody else doesn't. Education should be transformational. And I think that, you know, what we're seeing, not I think, I, I know this to be a fact because I've had this experience with the mandatory uh, Aboriginal education courses for teachers that date back eight years ago now, that once Canadians are empowered with more knowledge and more understanding, they, you know, are naturally inspired to, to do more, to, to create change, to advocate for, to volunteer, to lobby government, to create pressures, to, to add their voice to collectives. And so I think that that would be the way forward is, is to... Um, uh, for Canadians to, to arm themselves with some knowledge, find their own truth, whatever that may be, um, but then to, to begin to think about how they can act on that. And I think one of the biggest things that we're going to see is political pressures. You know, we have the benefit right now of having a prime minister who, to the best of my knowledge, is the first prime minister designate who ever addressed First Nations people in his, uh, in his designation speech. Mm. It's a great opportunity for us. And, you know, because of the fact that we are a treaty nation, which is embedded in our, our repatriated constitution, Section 35 identifies us as a, as a treaty country, because of the treaty rights that are enshrined into Canadian constitution and law, First Nations people, when they have to go to court to fight for their basic rights uh, and, the, the, you know, the responsibilities of our federal government, whenever Section 35 is invoked, when about 90% of court cases. So the legal leverage is there, but it shouldn't have to go to court, right? I mean, our federal government spends more money litigating against First Nations people than any other group, any other corporation, anything on earth. It's First Nations people. Hmm. That's such a horrific waste of tax dollars. Mm -hmm. If anyone, even the most, again, staunchest of critics, could look at that objectively and say, why are we wasting money fighting something that is embedded into our Constitution? I think all Canadians would be horrified by that. So this, I think that where we need to go next is, is that political voice, right? There's a lot of legal leverage. We need more political leverage, which is just to make sure that these issues continue to be front and center. There's a big movement right now from one of our MPs to have Canada fully adopt and implement the UN Declaration of Rights for Indigenous Peoples, UNDRIP, right? sign the petition for that. Uh, educate yourself on, on why that is important. But then, you know, if, if that resonates with you, sign the petition. Mm-hmm. Uh, help other people understand about that. Put mm-hmm. pressure on your MPs, your MLAs in the provincial government. Make sure that politicians understand that Indigenous issues are our issues as yeah. a country and that truth and reconciliation is not going away. It is something that we believe in as a nation. Kevin, thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for uh, creating space for us to, uh, to start to talk about this. Thanks, Stacy, and thank you very much to Kevin Lamaru for speaking with River City 360. 
Coming up after the break, we will speak with Sarah Leeson Klim, the Manitoba Regional Director of the Canadian CED or SED Network. But first, we're going to take a very quick musical break. Now, if you've heard the news earlier this week, there's a band out there that many people, myself included, would love to see reunited, but up to this point, they've rejected every offer they've received. However, they've signed on to reunite in hologram form. So I'm sure we'll be hearing more details about how that's going to work out. But for the time being, let's play a song by them. Here is Love Light by ABBA, right here on River City 360.
Welcome back to River City 360. Earlier last week, we attended The Gathering, which is a conference held by the Canadian Community Economic Development Network, or SEDNET. We spoke to Sarah Leeson Klim, the Manitoba Regional Director of the Canadian SED Network, to learn more about the event and the role of SEDNET in Manitoba. SEDNET's actually a national association of nonprofits, cooperatives, social enterprises, and individuals who are using community economic development as a, an approach and a tool to uh, create fairer, more sustainable communities across the country. In Manitoba, we have the largest network uh, with over 100 members, uh, spanning everything from foundations and nonprofits to small social enterprises, worker co ops, other associations, and a whole range of individuals. And our work breaks down into two big kind of major arms, one around building capacity and knowledge, uh, strengthening the skills and practice of community economic development on one side, and then talking to the public and, uh, and our governments about how we can create uh, a more favorable policy environment for the work that we're doing to try and solve systemic challenges in communities. And the event today is called The Gathering. It's a conference that's now in its 14th year. How did it get started and how has it kind of evolved over time? It started, so yeah, 14 years ago uh, with a number of agencies who are mostly working in the inner city of Winnipeg uh, and were funded by United Way at the time. Uh, and United Way was talking to their agencies about what, what might need to happen to really accelerate this work, increase it, move it forward. And one of the things that the community said was, we really, we know that we can learn from each other across different ways of working, different communities, different identity groups that we're working with, but it's hard when you're day in, day out in your community to do that work. And so could we have a day where we all come together uh, to learn from each other? So I, I think that's where it started from. That's still really the heart of the event. It's a, a chance for community builders to connect, learn, and celebrate. The way that it's evolved, it's, it's a lot bigger. I think we had about 100 people that first year at the Freight House in Inner City Winnipeg and now we routinely have between 550 and 600 people at the gathering so that means that we have lots more folks lots more workshops it means we can't do as much kind of community planning together because it's just too many people but it still is is really a community-based learning event uh, we don't bring in a whole lot of extra speakers or people it's really leaders learning from each other uh, focusing on practices and ideas that are emerging around them um, and a lot of celebration as well so we have a, a great keynote every morning uh, and a big lunch that's catered by social enterprises and cooperatives so we have a chance to feast together and celebrate the work we're doing. This year's theme is include, act, transform. How does that exactly tie in with the more applied element of community development? I think one of the major tenets of community development is that communities themselves are the experts of their ex own experience and they also know they know the, the problems, they also know the solutions that they need, but they're often just lacking resources uh, or coordination, potentially, to, to make that move forward. And I think the idea of inclusion is really important because we, we really can't have truly self-determining, truly inclusive, truly empowered communities unless people themselves from those different backgrounds that are facing barriers or marginalization are really at the forefront and the leaders uh, of movements. And we haven't always succeeded at that, I think, in some in some sectors, in some parts of this work, we're very good at empowering leaders from, from communities. Other places, we're not. Uh, so this is really about just exploring those ideas. You know, what does it mean to be a newcomer? What does it mean to be Indigenous? What does it mean to be someone who's kind of a, a settler Canadian or just a Canadian person who's trying to make sense of all this stuff? How do we work together? How do we step out of the way sometimes so that we can make sure others step forward? And so we've tried to increase increase the range of programming coming from those different communities so that folks have lots of opportunity to 
get exposed to different stories and different ways of working and to have some tools and skills that can help groups figure out how to practically move forward. And then we hope also that this sparks conversation that's going to happen outside of the gathering all year round uh, in communities about inclusion and about reconciliation with our Indigenous community. One of the other key points was it's not just strictly inclusion, it's inclusion without tokenism and making sure that if you include someone that you're actually getting them involved and that you're actually making them feel welcome and like they are equal partners in the dialogue and building those relationships. Yeah, I think I think the last part of what you said is especially relevant that I think what we're learning, what we're hearing really clearly from from communities is that to be a true partner is very different than having a space on your board or a consultation and uh, I'll be the first to admit that Sadnet hasn't figured this out um, and I haven't figured this out but but that that's the real key is that truly active truly transformative inclusion shifts us from just having uh, a diverse set of bodies in the room to having spaces and initiatives and programs that are actually really developed and led and and guided by by those communities that that are often the recipients of some of those programming pieces. So it's really that shift in, in governance and in leadership to something much more participatory and much more collaborative and much more led by those communities themselves um, that I think is is the real lesson that we're hearing from folks. If people are interested in learning more about the work of SEDNET, how can people get involved and take action if they're interested in these sort of topics? So SEDNET uh, has a website. Uh, we, we post events uh, and job opportunities there from all across the country, from not just ourselves, but from any organization that's a part of our network, uh, and often from partners as well. Um, we also do a whole bunch of different news stories and blog posts about what's going on, so that's a, a good place to start, I think. That website is a long one. It's www.ccedet-rcdec.ca. You could also just Google Canadian CED Network. And then I think you can find our program there if you search for The Gathering. Uh, I think going to some of the websites of the organizations represented in our workshop facilitators uh, in our list of presenters is also a great start. A lot of them have their own set of resources. Uh, I think about the the topic of reconciliation. There's a few great websites that are starting to emerge. Reconciliation Canada is is one, one that's been developed locally here uh, to really uh, be created by settlers that are wanting to be good allies and make a good effort towards reconciliation is called Groundwork for Change. Those would probably be great places to start. Uh, and then, yeah, looking at some of what our presenters are doing, I think, uh, is, will be a real source of inspiration. In the coming weeks, we'll have some sort of report up. We did a great dialogue session this morning, so we're going to collect a lot of that feedback, get it out there on our website, uh, and we'll start to see photos emerging as well from the day. So definitely people will be able to see what happened here, um, and hopefully from there start to do that social media thing where you connect to the people that are posting that stuff and start making those relationships as well. I would encourage people to find out more about SEDNET and uh, not just about the network and the staff team, but really about the, the organizations that make up the network. The work they're doing is remarkable. It's inspiring. It's effective. It's making change in communities. Uh, so you can certainly go to our website to find that out. But then I think digging into some of those organizations can really provide a sense of solidarity and of hope for, for our communities. And to get involved with SEDNET, if you're interested, we have a newsletter you can sign up for. You can become a member yourself. And of course, we have uh, other events and things that happen year-round that are all up on our website. That's great. Sarah, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks, Robert. While we were at the gathering uh, last week, we also spoke with the keynote speakers, Karen Joseph and Harsha Walia. So be sure to tune in to the next coming weeks of River City 360 for our conversations with them. 
It's the Manitoba Hockey Trivia Challenge on River City 360. Welcome back to River City 360. Nolan and Robert here with you this morning. And we are now joined in studio, as we have been for the past few weeks, by Fred Morris. He's a lifelong hockey fan. He's a citizen journalist for Community News Commons. And he is River City 360's Hockey Trivia Master for the Manitoba Hockey Trivia Challenge celebrating the 100th anniversary of the NHL. Fred, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you very much. So last week, we had a question about the Jets 1.0. So maybe repeat the question for our listeners, and then uh, we'll give them the answer. In 1995, which Winnipeg Jet ties Nell Stewart's record for the fastest two goals? So the fastest two goals. Uh, how fast? First of all, how fast were the two goals, and who was the player? Uh, on... No, December 15, 1995, Darren Quinn scored two goals in four seconds against the Edmonton Oilers in Winnipeg's 9-4 victory at the Winnipeg Arena, tying a record that was set on January 3, 1931 by Nell Stewart, who at one time was the leading all-time scorer in the NHL. Very cool. So four seconds apart. That's... I mean, is, is that record still standing today? It I don't still know. stands today. That's incredible. I love this question because uh, it, it led me to look up that those two goals because four seconds apart is such a ridiculous amount of time. And we looked it up. You can see it. You can see the video on YouTube right now. If you look up Darren Quint, uh, Winnipeg Jets, you'll see the two goals in four seconds. And what he did was he scored, and then they set up for the faceoff at, at center ice, Darren Quint being a defenseman. The Jets won the draw, and Quint skated it up over center and tried to ring it around the board and God bless the old Winnipeg Arena. The uh, One of the stanchions kicked the puck from the sideboards and, and uh, Edmonton's goalie was trying to go around behind the net and the uh, two goals in four seconds happened. It's quite the great shot or quite the great uh, little stat there. So if you go on YouTube, you can look up Darren Quint and, and see that clip. It's fantastic. And the other thing about Darren Quint is he actually was still playing hockey in Europe last year and I think maybe him and Shane Doan are the only two Winnipeg 1.0 Jets that are still playing at a relatively high level. Well, so he must he must have been very young then during in '95. Must have been 18, 19 years old. Well, he was 19 years 19. old, so it's not as if he, he knew the building very well. <laughs> right? Either, yeah, because exactly. Because he was relatively new to playing in the Winnipeg Arena. Fantastic. Well, congratulations to still having a record that that stands today. This week we had one correct guess, and that was from our current leader, Mr. Brian Monkman, with the correct answer, Darren Quint. Congratulations, Brian, and thanks for the call. So, Fred, what ha what question have you brought for us this week? Well, you know, oftentimes in hockey, we in life in general, we think of one person being associated with one city, but it's not always the case. The question this week is, this Montreal Canadian Hall of Famer appeared in 130 games for the Winnipeg Jets. This Winnip or sorry, this Montreal Canadiens Hall of Famer played 130 games for the Jets. So at least season, almost two, two full seasons with the Jets, but he's in the Hall of Fame as a Canadian. Yeah, and he's really associated with, with Montreal. Okay, interesting. My, dad, my dad's a huge Habs fan, so if he's listening right now, give us a call. You can call 204-944-9474, extension 360, and you can answer that question. Which Montreal Canadian Hall of Famer actually appeared in 130 games for the Winnipeg Jets as well. This has been the Manitoba Hockey Trivia Challenge. Call in now. Thank you for listening to River City 360. 
And now, here's the next installment in our series about Winnipeggers who, through foresight, planning, and generosity, created a lasting legacy and helped make their community a better place. Here's River City 360's co-host, Robert Zirk. Stephen Leach was passionate about music, especially rock and roll from the 1950s and 60s. Though he worked hard in school, his minor learning disability didn't allow him to excel. That all changed in grade 11, when Stephen joined the music program at Miles McDonald Collegiate. With his interest in computer music production, he had a promising future ahead of him. He had planned to further his studies at Red River College, but weeks before he was to graduate high school, Stephen took his own life. Looking for a way to honor Stephen's memory, the Leach family developed a scholarship fund. Each year, the Stephen Leach Music Awards supports a grade 12 student at Miles Mack, who shows enthusiasm and commitment in the field of music. This year marked the 15th anniversary of Stephen's passing, and the 15th time a student received support through the scholarship in his name. Since gifts to the foundation are endowed, they continue to support our community for good forever. Over time, the value of the awards will surpass that of the original gift, multiplying the positive impact in our community. When you give to a fund at the Winnipeg Foundation, you're joining the Leach family and thousands of others who are supporting our community for good forever. Thank you for listening to River City 360. Nolan Bicknell here at the Winnipeg Free Press News Cafe. We just finished one of the CNC multimedia workshops, and I am now sitting with Noah Ehrenberg. Noah, thank you for joining us on the show again. It's great to be here. So, Noah, we're doing our segment from the Free Press Cafe tonight because we just finished uh, another week of the CNC Multimedia training session. So maybe just tell us, tell our listeners a little bit about what, uh, what happens at these CNC workshops. Well, essentially what we do is we train uh, citizens in the art of multimedia storytelling. So tonight, for example, you and I were talking to a group of of, uh, citizens about how to do stories for video. So how to do video journalism. And um, we had a great crowd, uh, a really great session, and people learned the uh, essential elements of what you need to do if you want to create a video journalism story and, uh, of course, publish it on Community News Commons, which is the citizen journalism project of the Winnipeg Foundation and you can find it online at uh, you can find it online at cncwpg.org or just go to communitynewscommons.org I think probably the coolest thing and most interesting thing about it and you use this line all the time that it's the most diverse newsroom you've ever worked in being CNC but the room tonight was all sort of ranges of people who have uh, familiarity with video, familiarity with journalism, but also beginners who have never touched a video camera and who have never really done journalism before. So why do you think that that's a kind of an interesting element of CNC, just having the range of, of uh, experience like that? Well, I think that no matter what experience people have, we are all storytellers when it comes down to it. And we have these tools that are available to all of us, whether it be a cell phone or a computer or any number of other technologies that we've, that we've been able to use uh, to tell stories, they are now they are now uh, at our fingertips, and um, 
it's really not that difficult for people to learn how to use these tools and then of course how to tell effective stories and so I think because humans have been telling stories for you know thousands of years we it's in our DNA so uh, it really is something that appeals to a you know wide range of people when it comes to storytelling and that's why I think CNC has attracted this diverse range of people young and old uh, from all walks of life from all different uh, areas of the city and um, you know we've published um, uh, well over uh, 2,500 pieces of journalism just in the last few years and uh, the journalism that they the stories that the people are telling are really dynamic and they get a really great response and I think the 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 training that we provide uh, enhances that you don't have to take the training in order to write for CNC it's easy to write for CNC you just go to the to the website communitynewscommons.org you click on the register button which is at the top right hand corner and it takes a minute to register and you can start writing stories and I'm available as an editorial mentor to you when it comes to telling these stories throughout the year. So the sessions that we do, the training sessions that we're, we do every spring and fall, it just enhances that whole experience. So tell me about these sessions. I mean, tonight we covered journal or the video journalism aspect of it, but what are some other sort of topics that you cover and, and what are the things that you're teaching potential citizen journalists? Well, I'll tell you, uh, last Tuesday at the library, because it's Tuesdays at the libraries and then Thursdays at the Free Press Cafe, uh, last Tuesday at the library, we had a terrific session on how to write a review, whether it's a concert review, a restaurant review, a review of a book or a movie. It was dynamic. It was really, really exciting to hear all the different uh, opinions and different uh, analyses that we were able to come up with in terms of the things you need to think about before writing the review and how you actually uh, go ahead and, and write it and then publish it. So that's just one example. But what's coming up, which is very exciting, is Tuesday, uh, November the 1st, at the Millennium Library at 6 p.m., we're doing a session on online photojournalism. So it's everything you want to know about techniques for taking great, meaningful photos for online journalism. So that'll be uh, this Tuesday at the uh, free, uh, uh, sorry, at the Millennium library and then um, uh, at the Free Press Cafe on Wednesday November the 2nd uh, we we actually are going at the Free Press Cafe the following two Wednesdays so Wednesday November 2nd and uh, again uh, Wednesday November 9th we are doing sessions on advanced writing so we're going to really drill down on what are the best practices you can uh, you can muster in terms of uh, creating uh, effective online uh, citizen journalism and so we're going to do that on Wednesday November the 2nd at the Free Press Cafe and again on Wednesday November the 9th at the Free Press Cafe as well um, we're doing some audio storytelling I think our audience might be interested in that and that's on Tuesday uh, November the 8th at the Millennium Library we're doing a couple sessions one is on on Tuesday, November the 8th. The other is on Tuesday, November the 15th, both at Millennium Library. And um, the first one talks about um, sort of what makes a great radio story, how to do audio podcasting. And the second class uh, deals with the technical aspects of it. How do you actually uh, record the audio and how do you edit it and then put it into a podcast? So these are very exciting workshops and they, they all go from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. There's uh, all the information that you need to know is on the website, communitynewscommons.org. And uh, they are free. The sessions are free. And so is participating in CNC is for free. So it, it, it's a great opportunity for people to 
build their capacity as communicators and really uh, tell some meaningful stories from their neighborhoods. I think everyone probably has a story or has an idea, you know, it, it would be good to get that out there. And I think the best part about the training from what I've gathered anyways, is no matter what level you're at, no matter the barriers that you think are in front of you, we will be able to knock down those barriers in the sense that you'll be able to get over your fear, you'll be able to get over your technical difficulties, and we will teach you, you will teach, sorry, you will teach exactly what you need to do to get your story out there, because everyone's got a story. Mm -hmm. Um, What are some of the stories that people have posted on CNC in the last week or two? Oh, there's a whole bunch of stories in the last couple of weeks. Um, A couple that I think are interested, that our listeners would be interested is one uh, deals with um, the concept that people need less money to live as they get older. And the author of that story says, no, they actually don't. That's not correct. It was based on a C.D. Howe uh, report a few months ago that talked about the um, whether seniors or well actually the CD Howe Institute suggested that seniors need less money but uh, the um, the writer of this piece uh, Michael Wolfson uh, who happens to be an economist said no actually you know that's not correct uh, seniors um, do not uh, need less money as they get older there's all sorts of circumstances that uh, that uh, there's all sorts of circumstances that uh, that really dictate that they don't need and his basically the the line was is that if we're going to come up with pension policy reform uh, we should do it with some real statistics and real information that uh, that is factual uh, so th- I think uh, our audience would be interested in, in reading that as well as a story about frailty and uh, how the you know medical community is great at responding to emergencies when it comes to frail older adults but really um, the truth is is that in our health system often when uh, it comes to addressing the complex care needs of uh, patients between those urgent health care visits, the system really fails. And so this is a really interesting article on uh, why doctors need to be more concerned and more interested in treating the frail patients that they have because uh, they have some serious problems and uh, and the medical system doesn't really respond to that effectively. Those are two great examples of people writing about what's important to them and what kind of makes sense for their communities or makes sense in their world. And anyone can write any story. You can tell your story on Community News Commons. So for our listeners out there that have a story to tell, how can let's give them the information one more time on how they can tell it. Well, all they need to do is just go to communitynewscommons.org, go to the top right-hand corner of the page where it says uh, register or become a citizen reporter, and then you click on that and you basically create your account and you've got a byline at that point. And one thing I wanted to mention is that this week, Doug Kretschmer, who actually does a lot of reviews and photos and things like that, uh, his review of the uh, Terry Clark um, concert over at uh, the Club Regent Casino uh, received an enormous amount of, of, of uh, response online. I believe it was 2,500 shares on Facebook, and Terry Clark uh, retweeted it. She followed us on Facebook on, on, on Twitter, uh, and then when she posted it onto her Facebook page, uh, Terry Clark, that is, Reba McIntyre uh, took it, liked it, and then pub- republished it on her Facebook page. And one other thing is that we, uh, uh, Doug happened, Doug Kretschmer happened to be taking photos at the I Mother Earth concert uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and I just got an email from I Mother Earth's um, manager who said we've never had a great photo of the entire band because it's a huge band. We've never had a great photo of them, and we saw the photo that you took for Community News Commons. Can we purchase that because we want to present it to the band? in honor of their 20th anniversary and we want to be able to use this photo going forward. That's incredible. It is. (laughs) Well, 
there you have it, folks. If you sign up for CNC, you never know what can happen. So sign up, tell your story, and uh, you never know. Uh, thanks again, Noah Ehrenberg, for speaking to us today. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. Thanks, Nolan, and thank you, Noah. As they mentioned, you can visit cncwpg.org to find out more information about the training or to sign up to be a citizen journalist and tell your story. Every week, Noah also brings us a local band to showcase at the end of the show, and this week he sent us a great local band called Darling Twig. They recently released Trails last night with a performance at Urban Shaman, and we're going to play the title track off their new album for you. So here's Darling Twig with their song Trails, right here on River City 360. Little did I know that wherever I go, whatever I've had, I've been trailing a mountain. All the evergreen, while well, it couldn't cover me. The bitter cold is here now, and the wind it follows me. That's a wrap on this week's episode of River City 360. Thank you so much for listening, and a huge thank you to all of our guests for talking to us today. If you'd like to hear more views and news from around Winnipeg, listen to any of our past episodes, or subscribe to our podcast, you can do so online. Visit us at rivercity360.org. Again, that's rivercity360.org. River City 360, views and news from around Winnipeg, is a project of the Winnipeg Foundation in partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM. And we'd love to hear your feedback about the show. If you have any comments about what you just heard on this week's program, if you'd like to make a song request, or even if there's a topic that you'd like for us to cover, if you know of a great story in the community, some people or an organization that's doing really great work that you think should be featured on the show, give us a call and leave us a message on our listener line. It's open 24-7. The number is 204-944-9474, extension 360. Again, that's 204-944-9474, extension 360. We're also on Twitter and Facebook. You can search at RiverCity360 on Twitter or find us by searching RiverCity360 on Facebook as well. I'm Nolan Bicknell, signing off for RiverCity360. And I'm Robert Zirk. Thank you again so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Have a great Sunday.